Hi, I'm Carl. I'm August. I'm Jess. And I'm Offie. Welcome back to the Periphery, the podcast about all the biggest tech issues of our time. Today, we continue the conversation on privacy that we started last week, but instead of giving you the stories for what made privacy important in our lives, we're discussing global privacy regimes, whether and how our private lives online are protected, and what privacy will look like for you and me. But before we begin, we would love to hear your thoughts, how you feel, your ideas. And we have an email, theperfectpodcast at gmail.com. Send us anything you think, uh, even ideas from your episodes. And we also are on Patreon, Twitter, and Instagram. Um, But we'd love to hear from you. Uh, And thanks yet again for joining the conversation. So we've seen a lot of talk, a lot of conversation about the idea of digital privacy and the way that it's under threat. These issues seem to dominate headlines, at least related to technology today. So the weird thing for me is that there's no privacy law in the U.S. If you look through uh, the federal code, you'll find various laws that touch on privacy that mention privacy. Most of the time, they either regulate a specific sector like health or uh, or a specific group, like the privacy of children. Um, or there'll be, for example, we have a Privacy Act in the U.S., but that only covers the, the actions of the U.S. government, not anyone else. So I'm wondering, there's no privacy right in, in the Bill of Rights. Privacy is not mentioned in the United States. So why is privacy triggering this conversation? Is it just that vacuum? Well, right now, we're seeing a lot of action on the state level. Federal uh, Law in the United States doesn't just come from the federal government. And so even back in uh, the first decade of the century, we saw the Biometric Information Privacy Act, which was released in Illinois. That law was very expansive because the uh, penalties that you pay for each violation of collecting or storing biometric data, your fingerprints, your irises, um, could be huge. Uh, And so the class (coughs) actions there are really interesting. Uh, California, you know, our home state, um, they released uh, California Consumer Protection Act uh, Consumer Privacy Act, which was later uh, revised, uh, that's a major law as well. And then in Colorado and Virginia, various other states, we see privacy laws or privacy bills. Um, and then privacy itself has been used as a concept in antitrust cases uh, as ways to impose liability on, uh, on tech companies. And all of this, it seems to me, comes from events that are actually outside of the United States, right across the Atlantic. And that specifically is a law called the General Data Protection Regulation, which was released in 2018. Uh, Carl, we're hoping you can tell us about that. Oh, why are you hoping that I specifically can tell you about that? <laughs> oh, you know, just wondering. I thought you might know something about it. Just a hunch. Yeah, so um, yeah, so as you already mentioned, the GDPR um, is a data regulation uh, in the European Union that was passed or came into effect in 2018. Um, and it really, uh, I think what's interesting about it is just the breadth of it. Um, and I think... Maybe it's helpful to first speak about the aim of the law, which is really um, twofold, in my impression. One being giving European data subjects more control over their data and how it's being processed. And on on the other hand, and I think this is something that might be underemphasized often, is the fact that the law is also supposed to provide a more unified regulatory framework in some ways to simplify the regulations and to to provide... Uh, greater transparency and efficiency for businesses that are processing 
the data of uh, European data subjects. And so I think uh, without getting bogged down too much into the details, um, the GDPR really provides European data subjects with certain rights and accordingly also imposes certain obligations on businesses that are processing the data of European data subjects. And, and I think there are a lot of interesting ideas in the law that I think would be really helpful for us to discuss. Um, one just being that consent is such an important concept in the GDPR. Often there is the obligation to, um, in, in many situations, businesses are obligated to um, acquire the consent of a European data subject in order to process their data, although there are also other lawful bases in order to um, process data. And I think after the GDPR was passed, I think we all realized, or at least when I came back to Germany, I realized that at the bottom of websites, you would start getting these pop-ups where you would have to accept all kinds of different data collection. Um, so I think that is an interesting idea arising from it. But there are also other ideas like the right to be forgotten, uh, the right to rectify data that might be incorrect, um, and then also the right to withdraw consent uh, in, any, in any situation. And that needs to be as easy as it is to give consent in the first place. So I really just think it, it provides a very helpful framework for us to think about privacy. And as you've already said, August, I think it's also had, a, um, had an effect in shaping other countries' laws and legal developments in the U.S., but really also all around the world relating to privacy. Mm. Uh, the question is why? Why do Americans care that Europeans seem to think that they have all these rights online? Where do those rights come from? Are they human rights? And also, why does this matter to Americans? I mean, I agree with you, Carl, that there's a lot to learn from the GDPR. I think the biggest thing to learn from the GDPR is the, the European Union's ability to formulate an actual concept of privacy. When August was going through the American um, perspective of privacy, it's, it's patchwork, a it's a mess. We don't have a clear theory of privacy uh, online that I think is the brilliance of the GDPR. It was the first effort at it. But even then, I, you know, I'm not convinced it's going to quell a lot of the concerns that we have online. For, for the first part, you know, the European Union has a right to privacy in the Constitution, which we don't, as August noted. And that's a big thing for the right to be forgotten, whereas we have the freedom of speech and the right to be forgotten is in tension with the freedom of speech. Um, but even be, and, and beyond that, the GDPR has a lot of its roots in, you know, FIPs, fair information practices uh, that were developed in the United States decades ago when the Internet and being online and just the uh, expansive data sharing that goes on um, digitally connected as it was growing, they came with these FIPs that were largely codified again and again and again. And, you know, there are arguments that the GDPR only codifies um, the FIPs yet again with a bit more of an umbrella for what falls under, um, what type of entities fall under its governance. So, yeah, I mean, there's a lot to learn, but still, are we asking the questions of what is privacy in 2021? Or are we just formalizing what the norms are? Yeah, and the, these concepts date back to before, before the fair information practices. Like, our concept of legal privacy is rooted in a British tradition. And 
we said it's not privacy isn't explicitly mentioned in the Constitution, but it does come into play, um, like in the Third Amendment, which bans quartering of soldiers in a person's home. That has to do with privacy within the home. The Fourth Amendment, which requires a search warrant, fundamentally has to do with a person's privacy. The Fifth Amendment, protecting against self-incrimination, has privacy tinges to it. Even the Fourteenth Amendment. Um, requiring due process, that includes intrusions into bodily autonomy, bodily privacy as well. Um, but beyond the content yeah, that's, of these- That's the root of Roe v. Wade, for example. <laughs> yeah. Beyond the content of these various regulations, I think an important difference between the regulations we have or don't have in the United States and those um, found in GDPR is just the general posturing of the data protection where GDPR is like this comprehensive model um, it's supposed to apply to public and private sectors um, and that, that's supposed to have certain benefits which we I think we all agree upon that it, it, it increases efficiency in some way it at the very least um, provides clarity to data subjects in those regimes but it might also block innovation in data privacy because it doesn't distinguish between different types of data as um, as uniquely as the, or as um, as much as the United States model does, which is a sectoral model, and it, that really just applies to particular industries. And so, for companies that don't fall under sensitive industries, they don't have to follow the same regulations, which is kind of an American thing. Like if like less regulation is seen generally as a good thing by a lot of American companies. Mm-hmm. And that points to kind of the that sectoral approach that the U.S. has adopted. Uh, for various reasons in our history, is now colliding with that universal or general approach of GDPR. Uh, Largely, that's because of this thing called adequacy, where a part of the GDPR prevents uh, the data of data subjects in the European Union from being transferred to jurisdictions where it's been determined that uh, their privacy rules are not up to par, that they don't respect human rights online as they see them. The U.S., is one of those inadequate countries. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we've had multiple iterations. One was called Privacy Shield, um, where- Privacy Shield 2. Yeah, <laughs> and then we had multiple <laughs> versions of that, uh, where we tried to say, hey, maybe we can work out a way that Google can transfer its uh, data from Europe to the United States without having to build a bunch of servers over there. Uh, that has not been working. Uh, right now, we use this kind of ad hoc contract uh, system that I don't really understand. Um, but the, the result is that because of adequacy, U.S. companies like Microsoft, for example, um, are taking up GDPR rights and regulations, consent, the right to forget, the right to rectify, um, themselves. And now global tech companies with the perspective of not a national company, but the entire world, um, are globalizing GDPR. This is called the Brussels effect. I'm wondering, is this sustainable? And what does it mean for countries like the U.S. or even weaker countries uh, to have essentially the right to legislate privacy being taken away. Yeah, I, I, th- I think it's I, th- I think it's interesting because as a technology inherently, I think data really knows no borders or regulatory frameworks of different economic or geopolitical blocks. And so we are in some ways, um, it, it is interesting how how the flow of data is affected by these by this patchwork of different regimes all across the world. But as you already indicated, August, um, a block that is as large as the European Union can exert influence over other companies, um, even regulatory regimes all around the world. Um, the question is, is that 
Well, I, I'm not entirely sure if that's a sustainable way of um, it's of, not. of regulating. I don't think privacy. it is, and I think it, it probably in the long run requires more international cooperation, international agreements relating to the transfer of data. Um, but that, of course, collides with the idea that different countries, different cultures, different regulatory environments, they have a different understanding of privacy. And of course, we want to, on the one hand, we want to foster that kind of diversity, because I think it's, it can be helpful to have different approaches to privacy from all around the world. And each culture, each country has their blind spots. But then on the other hand, um, we of course also want there to be some fundamental level of agreement, because I think that is that it really is essential to the international transfer of data. So I'm I, I'm really not sure exactly how how we can reconcile that at in at this stage, especially because data and technology is of course also a geopolitical concern. Different geopolitical blocks want to promote their own te- technology industries, their own capabilities in this sector because technology is becoming increasingly important to national security as well. And so it, I think there's a we we're, we face uh, a few pretty substantial hurdles in in finding that common ground internationally. I mean, I think it's impossible. I mean, really consider it. Look at how different Apple behaves internationally or Microsoft. They all are like different companies, depending on the country you're looking at. If you're looking at Apple in China, that's a discomfort we have with our government having this access to our information that they don't have there. At the same time, you see in the European Union, they don't like how we're operating with their data or literally anyone. And we're big too. We can we can exert power. China can do the same. There's a lot of different blocks. And then beyond that, you know, it, it gets to a question of still what is privacy? Because I don't necessarily love Apple having it, but I think in many contexts, I prefer Apple having it over ICE or, you know, Department of Justice. Yeah, and, you know, this this shows how privacy is so much about geopolitical competition. You yeah. know, it is very much a tool of, of conflict. I mean, it's easy for the European Union, uh, for European Union leadership to say, these are our fundamental privacy rights that shall never be violated. They don't have the national champions of Google, Facebook, Amazon, and Apple constantly lobbying them pestering them and also just being fundamental to their national growth and their future prosperity. Uh, So I think that there's a lot of self-interest, even when it comes to uh, privacy advocates who are are arguing also for a more humane uh, way to regulate digital life, Uh, that privacy is uh, very much what is convenient for us when it comes to how we can control data, who gets that power. Uh, It's a battlefield. Yeah, so maybe we should talk about like what what we're hoping to keep private in this context. So um, a lot of times in this context, you'll hear the term like personal information, which is kind of the biggest subject of most privacy regulation today. And there are different categories of personal information, but if you think about it, it's it's like your personal financial information, your health information, um, maybe your familial information or who who you know where you go your location data um so that's that's sort of what's at risk here well i mean narrow down even further we're talking about personal information but what is personal information in 2021 is it how often you blink because to some entities it can be is it how quickly you type or how long you're staring at a picture uh you know it's so it's even hard because 
what is personal information. Everything can be triangulated. Their Facebook knows exactly who I am, even though I don't have a Facebook. And I can log on tomorrow, and they would know exactly the people to push me towards. They would know exactly the people, uh, the content that I'd probably like. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't, I'm not only, I don't even really exist there. They don't even have, you know, a formal collection of my own personal data uh, in the conventional sense of name, you know, <laughs> birthday. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And if you're if you're asking yourself right now, like why why do I care? What how much? For example, Facebook knows about me. Um, this could be a, a very good time for us to talk about Cambridge Analytica. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Cambridge Analytica, Cambridge Analytica was a really interesting event, not only because it changed Silicon Valley and the politics of technology in the United States and worldwide, but because it was a symbol. The weird thing is, Cambridge Analytica was it was a small data analytics firm. It wasn't even that big of a yeah, it was a small place. It just took the name Cambridge. It was Steve Bannon's idea. And um, they used Facebook APIs to essentially create a psychometric profile of the vast majority of, American, uh, of Americans online. Um, and they used that and they matched it with um, voting analysis and, and what they knew about people's political preferences to essentially push and nudge people to vote for Trump. And um, that um, the, the thing is why there were certain people who were skeptical about this whole event and its importance was because we have no evidence that this worked. We have, we, we, there's no way to prove that Cambridge Analytica, that huge process, and that they're not the only firm that engages in such activity, um, that it actually changed either the election or significantly affected the outcome in some way. We can't tell. But I think that it's still an important event because... Cambridge Analytica is a symbol of a future that we do not want, or at least we don't want from a democratic perspective, because it's a future where, as Neil Richards once, once told us in that original data class, uh, data, data science and behavioral science collide. Mm. And when that happens, the kind of fiction of agency that we rely on as a democratic society uh, becomes even more hollowed out. Uh, and people begin to realize, is the franchise, an illusion, when really we are not merely making our decisions anyway and we have no idea where those decisions come from. That's the danger in Cambridge Analytica. That was the threat that made me realize that privacy could be a vessel to protect human beings from market and political forces. Um, I'm wondering what you think about that. Is this a real threat? And uh, how do we respond to a threat that is just a dystopia in, in many ways? I think one helpful way of thinking about this is to try to distinguish this from just regular political advertising, political advocacy, because, of course, we've had that really throughout um, throughout the history of our democracy, right? Like, is the threat simply that it's more effective and that it's really affecting us on an individualized basis rather than um, on a more collective basis? Like, what... What makes it so much more potent? And again, this, here's the problem that we actually don't know how potent it was because we don't know if it actually worked. Um, but yeah, I do think it's probably some. It's probably related to kind of the potency and the the individualized nature of it. Or the surveillance of it all. I mean, I, yeah, I remember the Cambridge Analytica for me was the first time. I mean, maybe subconsciously it was why I stopped being on social media for a few years because I feel like I had to reassess what access to myself I'm giving the world uh, just by, by virtue of logging in. 
Um, and I feel like part of why I'm back on social media is because I, I, there is no escape. Um, <laughs> even when I'm not on it, I'm on it. Uh, or there's, I'm giving it data. Uh, it's learning about me. And it became this first time of me understanding, you know, technology as a boogeyman uh, that's perhaps inescapable. Uh, that started making me ask these questions about, like, you know, who owns this data? Who who owns my life online? Um, because I don't feel like I own it. Um, and I don't know if that's necessarily even the right answer. You know, if I do own my all my data online, how much would Facebook cost? I think the surrender to sort of the status quo, like, all right, I guess I'll get back on social media because what choice do I have really anyway, has to do with this bigger concept of, like, this this lack of consent or this manufactured consent. I mean, in the in the case of Cambridge Analytica, presumably, I, I, it was like 207, 270,000 people voluntarily signed up for this third-party app, which is basically the back door through which Cambridge Analytica got all this personal information. But it was a feature of Facebook at the time that if you used your Facebook login to sign up for something, it actually gave, acts, gave that third-party app access to the personal information of your friends. And so that automatically opened up personal information about some 50 million Facebook users that really at that time hadn't made a conscious decision to have their personal information shared. And while Facebook has changed that feature now, this sort of this idea of no real choice to make still exists today. It's sort of this paradox of like the real the real choice you could make today is to know that you're being manipulated. Mm-hmm. You know, this kind of connects with our conversation about antitrust, where Facebook is heavily implicated. Oh, it's all connected. It's all connected. That's the theme of the podcast. Uh, and Facebook was heavily implicated, of course, in Cambridge Analytica and that scandal. Um, not because they themselves said, we want to manipulate the election, but because they provided that infrastructure, that data. And I'm thinking about it kind of from, I'm trying to take on Facebook's perspective here, where they're, you know, I can imagine a Facebook executive saying, look, we created this tool. We created this online environment. You don't have to be there, but you're there. And uh, it collects data and, uh, and someone else used it. But ultimately, um, this was a whole system. But, you know, often you talk about ownership. We own this system. We built this house, if you want to, if you want to just, if you wanted to use a physical uh, analogy. Even Mark was surprised that it was able to build like this. Right. They're giving us information. The most impressive house I've ever seen. Because <laughs> when he started, it was at the time where it was insane to put your own name and yeah. your picture and your email and your phone number online. Right. It was the first. It was the first. Well, I guess MySpace might have been really good the first. Right. But we treat MySpace, we treat Facebook, as if like, hey. We're people there, and we deserve all the concomitant rights that come with being a person, with being an American. Um, and Facebook's like, yeah, you've got those, but here you are in our house, uh, you know, and we built it. Uh, we should be able to control the data that this house enables us to produce together. Uh, but who owns that? None of this would exist, of course, without the major companies that um, created an entirely private environment, which is all the American internet. Yeah, and I think I think one of the reasons that data and privacy are such hard things to get right from a human rights perspective globally is that it's not just about human rights it's also an immense 
minced commodity financially and geopolitically. And frankly, there are probably, well, there are several countries on the world stage that don't want to share data and that are in a bit of an arms race in terms of weaponizing or utilizing data for really big, big projects with a lot of national revenue. So that's also, I mean, it's, there's a conflict of interest here. It's not like countries are working together to protect privacy and they just haven't figured it out yet. It's that they really have self-interest in maintaining control over their data subjects' data. Okay, so we, we're talking about more tensions, which is seems to be a commonality this season, is that we're finding these areas where our values and the things that we desire don't seem to add up. And we're wondering if we'll ever be able to get both. Here, there's economic rights versus human rights. There's uh, bottom-up control versus top-down uh, enforcement. And it makes me feel like when it comes to privacy, we just have a lot more talking and thinking to do. We have a lot more work to do on the civil society level when it comes to realizing, okay, going forward, technology is creating new information about us. Here's the information that we want to be out of bounds. It's conversations much like the periphery, actually. I think this is the, this is the beginning of coherent policy, uh, flexible and nimble policy, uh, like Carl mentioned, uh, because privacy is probably one of the main challenges of the century. I think we've, uh, we've been going all day, but I think, I think we did the privacy episode. I think we started the conversation. I think so. And I, and I hope you join it. We, 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 obviously, we need more perspective. So we hope you join the conversation. folks thank you all so much uh, again for joining the conversation we really appreciate it and we love love making this podcast we want to make as many as we as we can for as long as we can but these are not cheap nor are they easy uh and we have a patreon that you can that you may support keep the conversation going um for five dollars a month you can become a conversationalist or you can just subscribe, you can leave a comment, you can leave a five-star rating, and it would be almost just, if not, no, it'll all be, it'll all be great. All of us the same. We love it, and we'll talk to you next week.